Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we have the entire clipping crew, David Diggs, William Hudson, and Jonathan Snipes from the hip-hop group, again, clipping. Guys, how are things? Doing all right, man. <laughs> yeah, okay. Excited to be here. When you were taking those acapellas and remixing them in the old days, was it more just to see where you could take it technically, or was it really about seeing who could outdo each other? Um, I, I, I guess I'm not sure what you mean by outdo each other. We, we made them together, Bill and I, at the same time. Um, it was... I don't know. It was kind of just like an academic idea, right? It was like, it was like here, here's this idea for a way that beats could work, right? That there could be a pulse and there could be a rhythm with no drum sounds and no pitch, yet there could be like a repetition and a, and a, and a sort of groove and a feeling. Uh, will this work? Like it was, it was very experimental in that regard. Is that like, well, here on paper is this idea that we don't know what it'll sound like, but we could try it. Um, I think that was really the impetus. As someone who was just a just a fan of it at that point, because I was sort of before I had I had moved to LA and and became part of the group. But as someone listening to it, it did this really interesting thing that has become sort of part of how we work, which is that it it, it took things that it took two sort of worlds that people kept saying didn't go together and pointed out how similar they were. Those those songs still felt like rap music to me when I listened to them, um, and that has to do with like a sort of energetic connection between the way, like both processes of making things, you know. And um, so that's become kind of like a clippingism, is as opposed to looking to like break something. We're actually looking to to point out the similarities in in things that people think aren't related. Yeah, I mean, there's a way that like remixes can kind of always sound like remixes, like a like a like an unsuccessful remix always feels like it's like well that's a, that beat is a cool idea, but it's like they weren't listening to the vocal or vice like if that was just the song, it wouldn't be as successful as either of the two elements on their own. And so I, we we were also working really hard to try to not do that. And I think that that's an utterly subjective, like very intuitive thing to try to do right we've talked about this a lot amongst each other but not really in public was this idea that there are these tracks there are certain remixes that you can tell immediately are a remix not because they're bad but because they seem incongruous they seem like no one would make that choice unless it was a remix and we were sort of interested in making songs that sounded like remixes but were totally original in that they were you know, had rapping that could go over a more traditional rap beat. They were made separately, but in fact, this is the only version and they were made together at the same time. You know, that was one of the original ideas. Well, David, did you primarily do the lyrics to everything or was, or was it like a fully collaborative um, effort from all three of you guys? It is fully collaborative. I write all the lyrics, but the sort of last phase of everything well so there's a first phase that's usually very collaborative in which all three of us argue for a long time about what kind of song we want to make and then 
Um, usually once I have a clear enough idea of what we're trying to do, I'll go write something. And then when we're recording it, it becomes very like very much like, oh, this word doesn't work here. I don't like the delivery on this or like it becomes like, a, a again, sort of an all three of us process, even even with the lyrics and even and a lot of me asking questions cadence wise and being like, is there a substitute for this? Because I can't say this fast enough or whatever. Well, were you guys essentially trying to tape trade after Mid-City? Because you got signed to Sub Pop really quick. Like, how was the process of, like, getting you guys assigned? Or did they just hear you and snatch you guys up as fast as they could? Yeah, pretty much that. It was, it was like, a weird confluence of uh, uh, Garrett, who's become a friend, worked in IT, and he heard us somehow. Did he hear us because of the tour? because of the proposed Perhaps, tour? Yeah, yeah. Probably. I just, I think, I think so. I think Brian Miller, who runs Death Bomb Arc, uh, at the time was in a band called Foot Village. We were going to do, do a tour with Foot Village. Uh, so Garrett was the, the Seattle contact for that tour. He heard the Mid-City record and played it for uh, A&R at Sub Pop, uh, Tony, who's our A&R there, uh, who then reached out and wanted to meet us um he came down to la to see a clipping show and i was actually in argentina working on a theater thing and so we thought we were gonna have to not do this show and i said but it's the one sub pop is coming to you guys got to do this show without me yeah it's true i've been to the fewest clipping shows. <laughs> <laughs> missing one ever <laughs> yes yeah, yeah yeah um Oh, actually, maybe that's not true because there were probably two or three yeah, clipping before shows I, before. Yeah, I've probably done fewer shows. Band. That's true. Um, the, it was also Tony. No shade on Tony, but like, was the oldest audience member at that show by a long, long, long shot, and we hadn't, we hadn't <laughs> met yet. And so, like, when he walked in the door and we saw him get like swallowed up by the mosh pit, we were like, "Oh fuck, man!" That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There go our chances. Like some. These like seventeen-year-olds just immediately crashed into him, and we just saw we just saw him disappear into the back of the crowd, and we were like, "Well, that that was our chance of being on Sub Pop." Gone. He just got beaten up by a bunch of teenagers. You guys did the score to uh, Room Two Thirty Seven. How much did Wendy Carlos have as an influence on you guys growing up? Growing up, I'm not yeah. sure that I was aware of her music until high school, at least, but. Jonathan, I, I bet Jonathan had the switched on records. Is that right? Yeah, I had switched on Bach and the switched on uh, the well-tempered synthesizer. Um, my my dad passed away when I was eight years old, uh, and he was a big lover of classical music and left behind this massive record collection. Uh, and my, I wasn't really like allowed to listen to like popular music or the radio. It wasn't like a strict rule, but the but the understanding in our house was that that was like, that was trash, and we were, we listened to classical music and opera and like folk music occasionally and things, and so after after he died, my musical education was was a lot of going through his records, and I gravitated towards the twentieth century stuff and the weirder stuff, and he had those two switched on records, he had an Asao Tomita record, and he had a couple of Don Dorsey uh, records, who was doing sort of a similar thing in the eighties. Uh, Bachbusters and Beethoven or Bust, a cheesier but similar thing. And so those records were huge for me because they were 
classical music tech, in, in like the loosest sense of the word as far as my mother was concerned, but they had these like timbres and these textures that felt like utterly, uh, you know, like that felt like the forbidden, you know, <laughs> side of music. Um, so definitely, I mean, like, honestly, I probably didn't really, uh, I, I probably didn't really gravitate to Wendy Carlos until again, like high school when I saw Clockwork Orange and got that score and and heard some of the other the other material um but that Isao, Isao Tomita record was huge huge for me like hugely influential it was so weird I, I just like had never heard anything like it yeah well how much did film play in all your guys's um like formative years because it's such a big element to your music now you guys are all involved in film in one way or another what were some of those early films that like really wanted you down that film path well, let's see. Yeah, I know. Well, both my parents taught film, and I worked at a video store. I worked at, like, one of the hip video stores in Berkeley, California, starting at um, 13 years old until coming down to college. So I was, like, I had a job all of high school as, like, a snotty, probably pretentious <laughs> I, just, I think about that I imagine what a prick I must have been. I'm like can you a sixteen a sixteen year old rolling his eyes at your like film selections at the video store. Like ah, uh. see that was me though. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you then, but I I could go out on a limb. <laughs> well, I did. And <laughs> I was equally as pretentious, though. So I think, um, but like my, you know, my sort of film education is directly linked to Bill's because his was like the spot, his parents, and we've, he was my best friend when we were nine years old. So like, and his parents, because they were, they've taught film, like that was the house all the kids could go to to watch R-rated movies. So like we, I, I it, pretty much everything I watched growing up was because I was at Bill's house every night. Would you say that now clipping has like kind of got an uptick because of, of blind spotting? <laughs> I don't know. If, I, I mean, pr- possibly. Um, well, have, I think... have you noticed it at all? Like, have, uh, and even like Bill and Jonathan, have you noticed since blind spotting came out that like you guys have like, been on the radar a little bit more or being put on more lists or being talked about a little bit more or has it kind of just always been the gradual upswing for you guys i mean i think the hamilton cavalcade is so is is is, it's hard to tell the difference honestly uh certainly not certainly not professionally Uh, (laughs) maybe maybe in fandom you know but what was it always important for you guys to like kind of have a like to allow politics to become more a part of your music as you guys evolved or did it, the world just evolve and the politics just kind of got thrown in? I think more than that, I think we had begun with this idea that um, there's no first person in, uh, in, in clipping and we were coming from a scene where, uh, you know, in, in, in underground music in Los Angeles and even just DIY music across the U.S., 
we were well known enough. People knew who we were personally. And so the idea of the band was this, there's absolutely no personality to this band. It's this utterly cut off um, sort of artifice uh, with no self there. Uh, and so we were, we thought we were political in how we made music, but not in the message of the music. We were saying there's no message. That's just this multiple shattered perspectives and no, no person at the center whose opinions uh, in matter to like the storytelling. Um, but what I think changed was once people who didn't know us personally were listening to the band, we had to, we were, we, we became more interested in actually telling stories about what we think and who we are and how we feel because it, you know, if we were just playing at the smell and pear space and Il Corral and, you know, places like that, that were literally no one at those shows didn't probably know us or be, a, or were friends of friends every, we didn't have to explain, you know, we didn't have to say like, look, you know, our politics are radically left wing. We are, you know, all of these things that we believe until, I think we started going on tour and people who didn't know us personally saw us and we started to have to think, well, some, there are some bad words in these songs that could be misinterpreted in certain ways, you know? I remember being at, uh, um, playing in this tiny, horrible, dangerous, sweaty basement in Paris. <laughs> um, I love that place. Uh, we were doing a song called uh, Face. Uh, the, the, the hook, the, the, the refrain is dick in your face, clit in your face, gun in your face. And, you know, some, this, some woman in the front row is just, I mean, she was, she was being funny and she wasn't like, this wasn't a heckle, but she was like, yeah, misogyny, woo! <laughs> So these people here in Paris don't recognize that dick in your face is a Nicki Minaj quote that then when David says next, clit in your face, is reversing it by doing the same thing Nicki was doing, which is to say, oh, this is, a, you know, the anatomy I don't have, but I'm going to, you know, use it aggressively. And then to answer it with gun in your face to be like, well, what we're really talking about is not actual biology, but this sort of threat of violence uh, that is sexualized. And like in L.A., everyone knows who we are, got the joke, got the reference and knows that it's not about um, anyone putting anyone's genitals in anyone's faces. Uh, so like, oh, shit. We better actually be a little more political right. because it's if you don't know us personally, you could completely mishear that something like that. I'm curious. It, to me, it feels like a lot of bands nowadays don't really have the rage that they once did. And I think that that rage, people would gravitate towards that and bring it in towards the mainstream. I don't see that happening a lot lately. And I like, I love you guys because you are bringing that and trying to get that into the mainstream. I just don't see that a lot with other bands, especially hip hop artists right now. And I think that they kind of need to be stepping up to the plate a little bit more to try to take this guy in the White House down. Do you agree with that or do you do you completely disagree with that? Well, I think it's uh, 
I think it is not fair to put the bulk of that on hip hop artists. Uh, no, sure. No, I, I don't really. I would. I know. I know. But I, I would argue that that even still is the is sort of the most continuously political music out there, um, and kind of, you know. Fuck Donald Trump was a hit years ago. Like, it, like we didn't make that. Um, that was like a, a mainstream LA rap hit. So I think. Um, I mean, uh, and that new that new little baby song, right? Yeah. Like the bigger picture. Like I, I do think yeah. it, it is happening, and I think in this moment it's happening more and more. What, what I guess I don't I maybe don't hear is. What what you know? What do you mean by rage? We don't have like a mainstream punk voice that has the aggression in the music as well. Uh, we have political lyrics and political anger being expressed, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't necessarily sound like maybe what Rage Against the Machine, for example, sounded like in '94. You know, um, little baby is not screaming. It's a it's a it's a different expression of that rage. And, and, you know, I mean, Kendrick Lamar has never not said, like, every word out of his mouth is, is politics. And he's probably the biggest rapper alive. Well, I'm curious, do you think that we're doing enough to try to get this guy out of the White House? I think, um, I, I, no, nobody's doing enough until he's out of the White House. But also, like, I think part of the frustration that you see in the in the hip-hop community specifically is, like, also... It, it, what happens when we get him out of the White House? And this sort of the 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 sort of promise that existed within that community with Obama's presidency has been there's so much disillusionment going on for, for myself personally, also, as well as like, yes, a, a great first step is getting that fuckhead out. But like what after that, also, the country is still fundamentally racist and like nobody is presenting policies that are fixing that and being taken seriously, right? So, like, I think what you see from even some of the more politically-minded rap acts is, like, and, and I, th- I think about this with blind spotting a lot, too, like, the, the way the Black Lives Matter movement jumped off after George Floyd and we made our George Floyd song. I, I was angrier in those few weeks than I have been in a long time, mostly because I spent 10 years writing a movie that was already about this and all of a sudden, after George Floyd died, the sales of our movie skyrocketed. And that's fucking frustrating, right? <laughs> because it's frustrating, but it's also true. And I'm not mad at it. I, whenever the awakening happens, it's good. But, like, I think what you see through in rap music and through a lot of, of sort of politically minded, like, left-leaning music is, like, we've been screaming this shit directly in your faces for our entire lives and still nothing has changed. And and we're clearly, you know, over the last four years have been sliding backwards in a lot of ways, at least, at least uh, publicly, right? And sort of exposing what has always existed in the underbelly politically of, of this country. And like, for, so there's an, there's an element of frustration with people being like, we gotta do more to get this motherfucker out of office. Yes, clearly we do, but also like, an economy based on the history of slavery is never going to serve the majority of the people in this country. Do you see this movement right now as something different than you've ever noticed before? Do you think that it's going to bring about real change? I don't know. I, me personally, I'm like 
I feel like old and jaded at this point, you know, like I am hopeful because I'm always hopeful and I'm, and I'm, and I'm relatively optimistic. Um, and it's certainly worth fighting for the chance of it. Um, but I, 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 my general theory about America is that like change on a, on a grand scale is very, very slow and very incremental. I am seeing is locally a lot of, a lot of really interesting things happen. And so I think we'll start to see within communities, the way we're talking about policing in certain communities is really interesting. The way, you know, when you start looking at local politics, that change feels substantial. And I have zero faith in the national politics of the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, like you said, like we're not, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing has gotten worse. We're just exposing things that have been true all along uh and and i you know wh- whatever happens next i think this this the situation and the conversations that are ha- being had now are a first step towards change whether or not that change actually happens this does feel like a bit you know like some pro- some progress in the right direction even though nothing has changed yet i mean this had to happen first Except that also, like, in our lifetimes, we have never seen sort of the nakedness of the opposition's right. rhetoric. I mean, we've never... Right. We grew up in an era where, yeah, the it, horrifying racism exists in the country, and but it was impolite to say it. And we've gotten to a point where it is no longer impolite to say it. And I think that has... Even before... Trump, we have, it has a lot to do with like, a, a, you know, the revolution in communication um, that, that the, the internet has made. It's a lar- it's hard to, it's hard to say any of this is positive because the other, the other side has become so sort of vicious uh, that, yeah, I don't know. I, it's hard to be optimistic. Uh, and and the, the, just the utter impotence of of the elected officials that are supposed to be on our side is uh, their inability or unwillingness to slow any fucking way is just astonishing to me. That we we just well, all he's he's exposed that this was all based on a sort of a gentlemanly agreement to <laughs> not commit crimes. And there's nothing, there's no system in place to actually stop a president from becoming a tyrant in front of our eyes because it was always just agreed upon that we don't do that. Well, I want to have a really terrible segue now, but what can we expect from visions of bodies being burned? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, more more scary rap songs. Yeah, this this was all music that was sort of made um, around and, and in the same thought as there existed an addiction to blood. So, um, you know, we would have put it out sooner, but COVID. So, um, yeah, these uh, this is like the the completion of our of our little horror short story thought that that we've been having really since we started this band. Um, and we'll probably still do more of it because it, it, the band's particularly suited to it. But yeah, I think um, this this one, I don't know, this one in my last couple of listens to it feels like 
weirder in some ways. And then also like the hits are more hitty. If that makes sense. <laughs> like it, it, uh, I really like this. I, re- I really like this, this collection of these songs. That always was kind of like, well, it was like part of our sort of ethos or our idea, right? Is how can we take the least accessible sounds and the most accessible structures uh, and sort of combine and like do them at the same time. And I think all of our albums have kind of pushed in those directions a little bit, you know? Um, and this one feels the most, I think you're right. Like every time I've listened to it, it's like, it's like there's some of the catchiest things with some of the least conventional sort of sounds and approaches inside them on this one. Uh, I think we get a little better at that in everything we make. Um, so this is the best one at that because it's the newest. <laughs> well, are you and uh, Bill trying any new equipment on this album or is it pretty much just the same as Addiction to Blood? Pretty similar. Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, the reality of how studios, my studio works anyway, is that it's a constant sort of fluidly changing environment. So it's not like we move into an empty house and build a new rig to make an album and make an album with that set of tools. You know, I live here uh, and we're just kind of constantly working and gear comes and goes. Um, I would say, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of gear that does come and go. Uh, one of the things we do with it is if we don't utterly love a piece of gear or it only kind of makes one sound or does one thing, we're like, okay, we're going to make one clipping track with that thing and then we're done with that thing and then then we, Jonathan will trade it or sell it or something. And so we, we, we do move through stuff like that. So I can't think of an example, but I'm sure there are tracks on this album where something was only used once and then we got rid of it a bit. That'd be a weird thing to shout out to. It's like, oh yeah, this we didn't like and we sold, but it made this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> and you know, and everybody has the sort of different uses uses for everything. If with infinite space and money, I would probably keep it all. But um... well, have you guys continued writing during this pandemic? We've written some things, but not uh, it, it, not. It's interesting as sort of. I, I've gotten, I've had to spend more time like on sets or in things, you know what I'm saying, than I, than I, as, as my life goes on. And so like the, the like lyric writing phase of this has become a lot less kind of all me sitting in the room while they're creating than it used to be. And like, what I think we found is the best way to get me to do something is to like have us sort of loosely talk about ideas while Bill and Jonathan are making music for a long time. And then if we can find like a few focused weeks for me to sit down and really like commit the lyrics to a thing, like things trickle in as we go on. But if, if we're really working on a project, those are the last couple of them, that's been the way it's come together. It's like, yeah, more of, more of a condensed blast of, yeah. Yeah. And we have made two, during this pandemic, we did make, we made chapter 319 mm-hmm. um, and we and released that. And we also did a uh, a cover of Jake Kwan's Tipsy yeah. for, uh, for Stereo, for a compilation by uh, Stereo Gum. Uh, and a cover, cover is very loose. Uh, the hook's <laughs> the same and the lyrics are different. Uh, and the beat is very different, but follows the same sort of rhythmic, rhythmic rhythm and uh, song structure. I, I 
don't that's actually not announced yet, but I don't know when your podcast comes out, but I also everyone already everyone already knows we did that song. Yeah. But if we were uh it's also just like a really fucking good song. If we were touring, that would be a high point of the show for sure. That's, that's <laughs> our encore song. Like that, it's mad. <laughs> so hard. Well, speaking of touring, are you guys itching to really get back out there? Yeah, I mean, we had to. We've we're like sort of constantly moving our tour. We had a bunch of dates booked, um, and it they just keep. We just keep getting an email from our from our booking agent being like, "Are you guys okay if we reschedule everything until this month?" And we're like, "Yeah, yeah, man. I don't, what? Yes, I would love to, I would love to play shows because I want shows to exist. I'm not interested in getting or spreading COVID. So, like, I think um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I am good. waiting until this is over." Are any of you guys working on any film work right now? Any composing, any acting from you, David? Uh, I'm about to go up next weekend to start my quarantine so that we can finish the second season of Snowpiercer. So that's happening. Um, there's uh, The Good Lord Bird, which I'm, I'm playing Frederick Douglass in, is coming out soon. I don't know. I should know the exact date, but I don't. Soul, <laughs> Pixar's Soul is coming out soon as well, I think. Um, I don't have dates for that either, but yeah, there's there's things coming out and there's working working things happening. Uh, I'm writing a lot and uh, trying to get this. There's a TV show I'm producing and writing with Rafael Casal. That's blind spotting the, for television is uh, is also about to go into production apparently. Although once again, the COVID of the COVIDness of it is like nobody really knows what that means. We have dates. And uh, we'll see. <laughs> Is that announced, or did you just like leak? It's announced you... that we're making a show. So oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, "Are you allowed to say that?" I don't know, but also, <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything uh, like film-wise, Jonathan, coming up? Uh, yeah i I just finished a couple weeks ago. Um, the new Rodney Asher movie who made Room 237 uh, which is called A Glitch in the Matrix um, I don't well I do know when that's coming out but I that's not announced yet um, but that one was score score and sound design and, and mix by me which is now our, our, our thing that we do um, and yeah what I've sound designed a couple of other movies uh, this summer, I'm finishing up a mix on a movie called Murderberry Wind that I scored a year ago that it will premiere at a film festival I don't remember the name of because I'm a bad collaborator. <laughs> um, wow, that's it's really just not there. Um, Cinequest, huh? Uh, right, so I finished, I'm finishing up now the, the sound design and mix of a movie I scored about a year ago called Murder Bray Win that will be premiering at Cinequest at the end of September. And is any of that uh, with Bill? No, Bill didn't work on these. Um, no, we haven't done a film thing in a while, right? Mm, yeah, I got. I think the mayor is the last televisual cinematic thing we worked on together 
Well, I'd like to thank you guys for coming on here today. It means a lot, and I'm fucking stoked for the new album. I hope everybody else is. Everybody picks this shit up. It's it's going to be awesome. The the first single is fucking amazing. So thank you guys. Thanks. Thank so you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Check out that hit single "Say the Name" right now. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. The hook gon' be what it is. The hands off. The retribution for what you took from the man. Got blood on the rust. God bless. The red earth, the dead man walks the tongue bridge, a bridge, the time space, the boot, the concrete, the project undone, they juke it. Major look, you can't see it. The mob built the walls, the streets bleed sweet, syrup, the bees love it. They coming on a swarm and they raining on your college ass disco. Get your collar turned up in your freshest attire. Get your bitch womb ready, cause this baby gonna be fire. It's not a dream, it's a memory. Memory glands heavy in the sky, blacked out already. Stop screaming, the flames ain't shit to a demon. Say the name. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. The hook gon' be the last thing she remember The fast lane in December often drift when she drive College girl looking for the love Learned about it in a book But she always kept the gloves on So when the skin touch, shit, head rush Red blush, lipstick, she just crush a lot Every pun pales a comparison A joke to a jester, she inundated with dick and becoming conservative and fucking and nervous that she would rush him, but murder wasn't discussing. The further she learned to trust him, the merger of love and lust, and she's serving it all up just because he hold her when he was bust. Until nine months later, with a stomach full of devil, baby, she started to think it's time to pump the brakes. But that train left the station with the great migration. Bloody tracks left right by the drain. Say the name. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned candlesticks in the dark visions of bodies being burned candlesticks in the dark visions of bodies being burned candlesticks in the dark visions of bodies being burned candlesticks in the dark visions of bodies being burned candlesticks in the dark visions of bodies being burned can you say it again can you say it again can you look into the mirror and then say it again can you say it again can you say it again can you say the name say the name Say it, the hook gon' be the coldest pimp slap Coat rack for man's skin, let it air dry Swiss cheese, the brother already half dead Brain leaking out a hole in his forehead Lobotomies like pills, get them for cheap The party line crack kills, they tryna see But this one more a hairline fracture Leave the face painted a mask for the hereafter After the smoke clears and the highs come down And the halogen hallucinations don't make a sound Just a bunch of scared junkies not making the call And a Guernica and blood on the wall Say the name Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned
Catch David Diggs right now on HBO's Good Lord Bird and Disney Plus's Hamilton and the upcoming Disney Pixar film Soul. And together with Jonathan Snipes and William Hudson for the clipping album Visions of Bodies Being Burned out this Friday, October 23rd, 2020 through Sub Pop Records. This concludes our broadcast day.